Acts 6 from verse 8. It's a long, fairly long passage. It's Stephen's speech. So, to get comfortable this one. Acts 6 from verse 8, and we'll read through to chapter 8. Now Stephen, a man full of, God, of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandra, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Before he lived in Haran, Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and, and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to the land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance there, here, not even a foot of ground, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at this time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the, in the tomb that Abram had brought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. 
As the time drew near for God to fulfil his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, came, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the men who were mistreating the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me? As you have killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him about Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honour of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over over to the worship of, of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what was written in the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the desert, O house of Israel. You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Erephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our heavenly fathers had a tabernacle of the testimony 
with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where, where will my resting place be? Has not my hands made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelled, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. It's the word of the Lord. Carl. <clears throat> Well, uh, this sermon, I think, could really be called, or, or should really be called, perhaps, uh, the first Christian martyr. Uh, I think it's uh, down as just the first martyr, but uh, it really should be called, I think, the first Christian martyr, because our world, uh, it seems, is full of martyrs. The word martyr can mean several different things in modern English. Sometimes it's used in a mocking way. Uh, so it refers to a person who exaggerates their own discomfort or distress. That's how it's used in, in uh, my family. So, uh, they, oh, don't be such a martyr. You know, no, I don't, no, it's all right, I won't have the last biscuit. No, you have it. Uh, you know, that person is a martyr. There's a, lot, there's a bit of a competition in my family to see who can be the, the biggest martyr. Uh, but also, with the rise of militant Islam, the... Uh, word martyr has come to refer to a person who kills themselves uh, in order uh, to uh, perpetuate uh, their religious beliefs, to kill others as well. But that's a relatively new uh, definition of the word martyr. The word martyr, generally speaking, refers to a person who's killed by others because of their religious beliefs. That is, you cannot martyr yourself you can only be martyred by others. The word originally comes from a Greek word and it simply means 
to witness. Actually, the word originally had nothing to do with dying. It just meant to witness, to bear witness. A martyr was a witness. And the word developed from Christian usage. Uh, Most of the times in the New Testament, the word has nothing to do with death. It just refers to people bearing testimony to Jesus. But because of men like Stephen, over time the word began to be associated with uh, people being put to death for their faith. And although the word martyr is never used in this chapter about Stephen, it's fair to say that what we have here in the life of Stephen, in the death of Stephen, is the first Christian martyr, a man who was so committed to bearing testimony to the truth of Jesus, so committed to that, that he went to his death. He was killed by the very people to whom he was seeking to make the gospel known. In fact, I don't know if you you noticed, but in this long chapter, the great interest is not how Stephen died, but what he said. A whole chapter is devoted to what he said, to to his testimony about Jesus, and barely a few verses, actually, is devoted to his death. Well, all through the beginning of Acts, the opposition to the gospel has been growing. The apostles have been hauled before courts, they've been beaten, they've been thrown in prison, but now things get really sinister, unable to spread the stop of the the spread unable to stop the spread of the gospel by other means, people decide to bring trumped-up charges against Stephen, just like they did to Jesus. And there are two accusations that are levelled against Stephen. Uh, First of all, that he was speaking against the temple. And second of all, that he was speaking against what God had said through Moses in the Old Testament. Two accusations, that he was speaking against the temple and that he was speaking against what God had said through Moses in the Old Testament. Well, in his speech, Stephen answers both those objections. And he does that by retelling the history of Israel in, pretty, uh, in a pretty brief kind of overview. First, he shows that God is not and has never been tied to a particular place. He says in verse 2, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Way before the temple was built, way before the people were living in the land that they would later inherit, way before all of that, God appeared to Abraham. Not in the land that would later become the land of Israel, but somewhere else, in Mesopotamia. There's a great story about... uh, George Whitfield, uh, by an actor, I think I can't think of his name, uh, who said that George Whitfield could pronounce the word Mesopotamia in such a way that it could make a grown man cry. Mesopotamia. Well, I don't know if you're, you're on the edge of tears, but that's where God appeared to Abraham. Not in the land of Israel, but in Mesopotamia. And it was there that God made promises to Abraham, and God... Uh, promised to be Abraham's God. Irrespective of where Abraham was living, God would be Abraham's God. A few generations later, Stephen says, Abraham's descendants had to flee to the land of Egypt because there was famine in the land that they were living in. But even in Egypt, God was with them. God raised up Joseph. Later on still, Moses was born and the people were still in Egypt. Egypt. 
And then God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Verse 30, after 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Again, God appeared to Moses, not in Israel, not in the temple. When did God ever appear in the temple like that? Moses was instructed to take off his shoes because the place where he was standing was holy ground, not because it was a temple or a special place, but because God was there. Stephen doesn't mention it, but by referring to Mount Sinai, he brings to the mind of these readers what God did later on. And when he gave the Ten Commandments, when he appeared to the whole nation from the mountain, out of a great storm and lightning and a thundering voice speaking to the people. Stephen continues that there there was the period of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Still they had no temple, but God directed them to make a tent or a tabernacle. It was a kind of a portable temple that they could move around. Wherever the people went, God went with them. Remarkably, the people were wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, because they weren't able to enter the promised land because of their sin. God said, you're going to have to wander around for 40 years. But still... God wanted them to know that wherever they went, he was with them. Even as they wandered in the wilderness, God wanted them to know that he was with them. Finally, they entered the promised land under Joshua. There was still no temple. Under David, there was no temple, though he offered to build one. Finally, it was in the days of Solomon that a temple was built. And even as Solomon dedicated the temple, it was clear that he didn't believe that God actually lived in that building. In 1 Kings 8, Solomon prays, but, God, uh, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And on and on through that chapter, Solomon prays that God would hear their prayers from heaven. So when the people would cry out to God, that God would hear from heaven, from his dwelling place. And when God's people have been defeated and they cry out to God, that God would hear from heaven and rescue them. When God's people have sinned and they confess their sin and turn to God, that God would hear from heaven and forgive. Solomon did not believe for a moment that the building was where God was. The temple was the place where God's glory, where God had chosen to make his glory known on earth. But it did not contain God, and God was not limited to being there. Stephen says in verse 48, The Most High does not live in houses made by men. And he quotes from Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? How do you build a house for God? 
How do you build a house to contain God, a house big enough to contain God? How do you build a house big enough to contain the God who made the universe, who made the heaven and earth? What kind of house would you build for that God? Perhaps you think that God lives in special buildings or in special places. Uh, Some Christians talk about church as though it's in church that we meet God. It's in church that God comes near and the rest of the time God is far off. They talk about going to church as going to meet with God. But God doesn't just meet us in buildings. God meets us wherever we are. Some people, on the other hand, think that God is so far off that we can never meet with God. That God is only in heaven and God is never close by. But neither of those things is true, Stephen tells us. The people in Stephen's day thought that the temple was the only place where God was. And so they thought that when Stephen said, well, the temple doesn't matter anymore, they thought Stephen was saying something against God. But actually what Stephen was trying to do was to show that God had something so much better in mind than a building. He shows that God never lived in temples. God always met his people where they were. The temple itself was just a sign that God was among his people. It was a visible sign too that one day God would be among his people in a special way, a unique way, in a powerful way. As he'd been with Adam and Eve at the beginning of time, walking among them and speaking with them. What the temple foreshadowed and what the temple promised has come to reality in Jesus Christ. That's what Stephen wanted these people to know. It's not about the building. But what God foreshadowed in the building has come to reality in Jesus. Jesus came and tabernacled amongst us, the Gospel of John says. He he was like the, the presence, the glory of God. Coming down from heaven and moving about among us. The temple was a kind of dry run for the incarnation. The glory of God being made manifest among human beings. The people were content with the building. Stephen wanted them to know that Jesus, in Jesus, God has come to us. Well, what would you rather have? A great building? Or the presence of God. I think some people would rather have a great building. Some people join churches because they have great buildings. We have a nice building. I don't know that it's a great building. It's not, you know, the Sagrada Familia or anything like that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's not uh, St. Peter's Basilica. But would you rather go to an empty grand building? Or would you rather see God face to face? Would you rather see the glory of God? And Stephen shows us that the pattern is not just us going to a special place to meet God, but God coming down from heaven to meet us. 
Abram wandering in Mesopotamia and God met him there. The descendants of Abraham fleeing to Egypt because of famine in their homeland and God meeting them there. Moses, rejected by his own people, wandering in the wilderness. And the glory of God met him in the burning bush. So often we think we need to go and find God, to find the presence of God. But Stephen says, no, it's not about going somewhere, but about God coming down to us. God stooping down to meet with us and to introduce himself to us. God doesn't live in buildings made by human hands, but lives with his people through Jesus and now through the Holy Spirit in us. Well, Stephen shows God is not restricted to buildings and places, but then he goes on to address the other accusation against him that he was speaking against Moses. And he says, what he says to the leaders is, it's not him who is rejecting uh, Moses, but these leaders who are rejecting Moses and the Old Testament. Stephen does that. He uh, rejects that accusation by showing how through history God has worked through individuals descended from Abraham. So first God raised up Abraham and made promises to him, promises that God would give a place for Abraham to live with God forever. God promised that he would put the world right through a descendant of Abraham and that he would crush Satan's head and remove the power of sin. God reiterated those promises, first to Isaac and then to Jacob. Then God raised up Joseph to rule in Egypt. Uh, God raised up Joseph so that when the famine came, he was in a position to rescue his family uh, and those with them. Then God raised up Moses. After the time of Joseph, the people of Egypt forgot Uh, what Joseph had done for them, and so they began to enslave the people of God. But God raised up Moses to deliver the people from that slavery. Stephen says in verse 35, he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. After Moses, God raised up Joshua, who brought the people into the promised land. And God raised up David, and after that he raised up Solomon and other people after that. And now, he says, finally God has raised up Jesus. All through the Old Testament, God raised up individuals, individual people to shepherd and rescue and save his people. And those people were just prefigurements, just portraits of Jesus who was to come. Moses had told the people, Stephen says in verse 37, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. God had given Moses living words, Stephen says, to pass on to us. Words about Jesus. Moses had foretold the coming of Jesus Christ. The prophets had foretold the coming of Jesus Christ. And now that Jesus had come, they had rejected him. (coughs) 
It wasn't Stephen who was rejecting Moses, but it was these religious leaders who were rejecting Moses by refusing to receive Jesus. They'd received the law, Stephen says, but they hadn't kept it. They thought that they'd kept the law, but they hadn't because they had rejected the Jesus to whom the law pointed. They are stiff-necked, Stephen says, with uncircumcised hearts and ears. That is, they refuse to humble themselves before God and to put their trust in Jesus, in Jesus, the promised descendant of Abraham and David, through whom God is putting the world right. Notice that Stephen is not talking to irreligious people. He's not talking to irreligious people, but religious people. These people had zeal for God. These people were very thoughtful about how to live for God. They were zealous for God, but they'd missed Jesus. And in missing Jesus, they'd missed the whole point. There are lots of people around who like the idea of living for a God. If you ask most people, you'll find out that they believe that some kind of God exists. I often meet people uh, and I say, you know, uh, are you a Christian? No, I'm not a Christian. Uh, I I grew up in a church. And I would say, well, what do you believe now? Uh, Well, I believe there's a God, but I don't know know who it is or, or something like that. There's very few people, actually, who are complete atheists. So you might believe in a God of some kind. You might even try to serve that God and honour that God. You might try to live by a strong moral code. You might sacrifice yourself in service to that God. You might uh, try to be a really good person, a really kind person. You might try and live your life as best that you can. But the trouble is the Bible says that really amounts to nothing. All that effort, all that labour, all that hard work really amounts to nothing because what matters is not serving the God of our own imaginations but knowing and trusting Jesus whom God sent to rescue us. It's like drowning in the water or something and the surf lifesavers come out to rescue you and they say, here, here, take my hand. And you say, no, it's all right. I'm fashioning a a raft over here from this driftwood that I've found uh, and I should be okay. God sent the Saviour to come out and to rescue us and we are distracted by the gods of our own imaginations, the gods of our own creation. Lots of people like the idea of a Saviour. They just don't like the Saviour that God has sent. So you might cry out to God to save you. You might cry out to God to rescue you, might even cry out to God to rescue you from sin. You like the idea of a saviour, but you just don't like Jesus. The Jesus who says, come and follow me. The Jesus who says, deny yourself and take up your cross. The Old Testament people of God loved being saved. They were experts in crying out to God. But they were also experts in refusing to listen to the saviours and the leaders that God sent to rescue them. 
They liked being saved, but they didn't like listening to God. Running through this whole chapter is not only the account of God appearing to people and coming down to meet them where they are. And running through this chapter is not only the account of God sending, raising up these people to save his people and ultimately raising up Jesus. Running through this chapter is also the account of how when God did that, the people rejected the very people that God sent to save them. Stephen focuses on two examples. Joseph... Joseph, whose 12 brothers became jealous of him and sent him into slavery in Egypt. And Moses. Moses, who when he rescued one of his own people, he was rejected. And they asked, who made you ruler and judge over us? God met him in the burning bush. God commissioned him to lead the people out of slavery But Stephen says in verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. For every deliverer that God raised up, the people rejected them. And now God has raised up Jesus and he's being rejected too. What were their reasons Why did people reject God's deliverers and why did they ultimately reject God's Messiah, Jesus? Well, they rejected Joseph out of jealousy. Joseph's brothers didn't like that he was special and that they were ordinary. You might wonder, how can we reject God out of jealousy? Well, it's it's actually very easy. How can we be jealous of God? We can be jealous of God in that we want to be God. That was a sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They wanted to be like God. They wanted what God had. They were jealous of God. We don't normally call it jealousy, but that's what it was. We wanted to be number one. We wanted to determine our own course, our own future, our own destiny. We can't, of course, but that doesn't stop us from wanting it. And it doesn't stop us from rejecting Jesus and destroying our lives and the lives of others in the process. Why do people reject Jesus? They reject Jesus because they're jealous for who he is. The Son of God. And they want to be God themselves. People rejected Joseph out of jealousy But the Old Testament people also rejected Moses out of pride. They asked Moses, who made you ruler and judge? That is, why should we listen to you rather than to ourselves? They refused to submit to anyone except themselves. And again, people reject Jesus for the same reason. They ask, who made Jesus ruler and judge? They want, as I said before, they want a saviour, but they don't want someone who is to be listened to and obeyed. Finally, these people listening to Stephen reject Jesus out of stubbornness. They were stiff-necked, just like the people of Israel. It's so sad, isn't it, (laughs) that people reject Jesus for such petty reasons like jealousy and pride and stubbornness. 
God has come down to live among us, to meet us where we are, and people reject God's saviour Jesus. Well, the opposition of these religious leaders is so severe, so implacable, they hate Jesus so much that they put Jesus' servant to death. When they hear what Stephen has to say, they're furious. And when Stephen sees heaven opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, they drag Stephen outside and they kill him by stoning him to death. The contrast between Stephen and the religious leaders could not be greater. Their pride and stubbornness is so deeply rooted that they would rather kill than repent. And Stephen's humble trust so quietly assured that he could go to death testifying to Jesus and even praying that God would forgive his executioners. You see, this chapter presents us with two opposites. Two kinds of people. Those who reject Jesus and those who, like Stephen, trust Jesus even unto death. It's a great challenge, isn't it? What kind of person are you? A jealous proud and a stubborn person or a humble trusting person like Stephen who believes in Jesus God's precious saviour and king let's pray dear Lord and Heavenly Father we thank you that you are a God who has worked from the creation of the world uh, to create a people for yourself, holy and dearly loved. And Lord, we thank you for the reminder in Stephen's synopsis of the Old Testament that right from the fall into sin, you've been working through your people, to bring about redemption and forgiveness, the destruction of Satan and the end of sin. And Lord, thank you that you have finally done that in Jesus Christ, that he left your right hand and came down among us, not to meet us in a great building, but to meet us where we are, uh, in our houses, in our workplaces, on our streets, in our churches, in our communities. Lord, please help us to receive Jesus as our saviour, and as our King. Help us to listen to him and to follow him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.